Boogeyman is real, and you found him. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bearded Horror Review. My name is Dan, aka The Boogeyman, and on here I will review a horror film, either a current release or a classic. I will try and deep dive into it and go through it, through the film, see what was good about it, what was bad about it, and whether it's worth a watch or not. Um, I am currently on episode two this so this is the second episode and i thought for the first few episodes um i would talk about some classic horror films and last week i spoke about the exorcist and i talked about how it sparked you know the modern version of horror and when i talk about that i mean films like the conjuring the insidious series things like that you know your modern horror tropes of possession films or demon films which are very popular and have been in the last 10 years or so. And there's been some fantastic films and there's been some absolutely terrible ones. <clears throat> bye bye, man. <clears throat> um, and um, so I thought I, would t I spoke about The Exorcist and about that kind of sparked off that genre and set a blueprint for that genre. And so I thought I would do that again today, but talk about a different genre of horror. Um, the thing what we notice as horror fans is when we talk about horror to people who aren't horror fans, they seem to have two views of horror. There is the modern horror of the possession film and the, the demon film, you know, that very popular kind of idea of horror. Or they think about slasher films. So these are the two kind of genres that they end up thinking about. Um, not realizing that horror is a massive, massive genre, uh, genre filled, you know, kind of film theme almost, because uh, you've got your your, modern, you know, your possession horrors, your demons, you've got your slashes, but you've also got your torture porn, you've got your J horrors, you've got your psychological horrors, you've got your horror comedies, um, so there's you you've got your creature features. There's a lot of different type of horror movies out there. And there's a lot of different films that sparked these genres. So I thought today I would talk about the slasher genre. And what I felt was the film that set that blueprint off. Now, if you've read the title, you know what film I'm going to talk about. However... This is, again, one of those where I did if and R, because some people have a different idea of what was the original slasher. Um, some people think it was maybe Black Christmas or even to a point Peeping Tom. Um, some people might even think it's something else. However, a lot of people agree, and I have the same view, uh, that the slasher genre as it is today sparked off by one film and when we talk about the slasher genre what do i mean so there's certain things that have to happen in a slasher film for it to be a slasher number one usually your silent stalking killer so this is a singular figure 
usually in a, some kind of costume or has some kind of gimmick um, that will stalk a group of unsuspecting teenagers. And again, that's another trope. They're usually teenagers, usually a group of them. They're usually in either a small town or a singular location like a, a camp or somewhere away from home or an abandoned mental institution. Um, yeah, so they are picked off one by one. They are usually uh, films that are filled with gratuitous violence, nudity, drinking and drugs. And this is usually the case for slashes. That's a, a basic kind of, that's here's your tick boxes for a slasher film. Yeah. Um, so this was a massive, massive genre throughout the 80s. There were so many slashes made because they're easy to make, they're cheap, and you know, you can theme them quite easily. And yeah, it's all about the kills and the effects. And you know, there was there was loads. And the film I'm gonna talk about today even probably started two genres, the slasher genre in general, and then the genre of naming horror films after a specific day of the year. Um, so today we're going to be talking about John Carpenter's Halloween. And I, I yeah, I, this film has all of those tick, 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 tick. It was originally called The Babysitter Murders until it was then changed to simply Halloween, um, written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. Um directed by John Carpenter it was an independent film and yeah it started that genre of things named after days because you've then you've got your graduation day you've got your April Fool's Day you know you've got your Mother's Day you've got your New Year's Day you got you there's so many horror films that have like a specific day thanks to Halloween um and it directly influenced things like Friday the 13th. They literally, the, the people who made Friday the 13th said, how can we, let's copy Halloween. Let's do that. And they made their own, they made their own version. Um, so yeah, let's talk about Halloween. Um, so if you haven't seen John Carpenter's Halloween, I'm not talking about the Rob Zombie remake. I'm not talking about the 2018 Halloween. I'm talking about the original 1970s Halloween. If you haven't seen it, Go see it because there's going to be spoilers. Spoilers ahead. Spoilers one more time. You have been warned. There are spoilers. Um, yeah, so let's get into it. So the film starts in the 50s. Um, it is set up as a, a POV shot of someone stalking a young couple around a house who then kills them. And it's revealed that it's a young boy. And it's revealed that... And the young boy has killed his sister. Um, the opening shot is fantastic. It's a, a steady cam glide around the house, set up to look like a POV shot from Michael's perspective. Uh, Michael Myers is an icon of horror, absolute icon of horror, and he kind of is the original silent killer, the silent stalker. I feel. Um, if there is someone else, please let me know. Um, but yeah, with his spray-painted William Shatner mask, uh, he just kind of exudes a presence in that film. And that's what a lot of other slashers try to capture. 
that's where we get you know our Friday the 13th from that had this stalking silent killer and there's many films that have it even now to this day Hatchet you know Victor Crowley is a silent except for his grunts killer um so there's there's this whole genre of slasher killers that have become icons thanks to michael even uh, jason Voorhees uh from friday the 13th part two onwards you know he was the the masked stalker and there's many of them there's the burning that has our our, our silent burn victim stalker and even in sleepaway camp even though we don't really see the killer they are silent and they're a stalker and they're stalking the campers um so yeah let's get into it so we've, we've gone through the opening this is sets it up as it it's this young boy killed his sister on halloween night in the 50s cut to 15 years later and michael is about to be escorted uh, away from the uh, mental institution where he is being kept to a different institution. We don't know why, but he is. The psychiatrist that has been looking after him, Dr. Loomis, uh, is one of the main focuses of this film from this point onwards, um, is headed to the transfer. For some reason, it's happened late at night. Um, he's headed there with another nurse. And it sets up the coldness of Michael Myers in this conversation because they're just having a conversation in the car but you can see Loomis is worried he's talking about Michael like he is a thing and not a person says um that he's you know he's not a man anymore there's there's nothing but the evil behind his eyes and he's drinking whiskey from a flask he's clearly you know on edge dealing with this he says he spent five years trying to get through to Michael in the last 10 years, making sure he'd never get out. Um, and that kind of says a lot about what Michael is. What it's doing in this scene is we're setting up Michael as remorseless and as a killer. That's it. That's all he is. That's all he, is, that all he does. Um, it's not setting up motivation. It's not setting up uh, reason. It's not setting up a twist. It's not setting anything up other than Michael is a killer and Michael will kill if he gets out it's as simple as that and when we arrive at the hospital unfortunately it's surrounded by inmates walking around in the rain Loomis gets out of the car to try and figure out what is going on clearly there has been an outbreak unfortunately Michael has also escaped because he appears on the car. He attacks the car, scares the nurse, eventually gets the nurse out of the car, and he steals the car. And this is when we cut to Haddonfield, which is where our film is set. Um, so we have our main character, Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, um the sweet, innocent final girl that we are about to see in this film. Um, she is our she she is our main character, uh, and she is accompanied by her friends, her two female friends. Um, 
One of them is the daughter of the sheriff, you know, the police chief of the town. And the other one is just, uh, just her. It's a girl that says totally a lot. (laughs) She's like totally every other fucking word. Uh, Apparently Deborah Hill, who wrote this film along with John Carpenter, uh, modelled her on the way that she used to talk with her friends. Uh, And it's insufferable and I hate it. But in a good way, because it, it sets up this person. Oh, this person's so annoying. And they're talking about how they're going to be babysitting that night in their rep- rep- respective houses, looking after their different kids. But like, hey, well, mine's going to be going to sleep at this time. And I've got an empty house here. Why don't we hang out? Why don't we do something? Uh, and they're talking about getting beer and uh, talking about boys. And yeah, so this is something that they're planning up. And the other side, we took it back. We've got Loomis making his way to Haddonfield. He's chasing the trail of Michael, um, who we have seen has ditched the car that he stole. He ends up stealing another car, which you actually see in the background quite a few times before Michael is then reintroduced in one scene. Um, He always seems to be near Laurie and her friends. Um which I think is a great touch to show that like Michael's always there, um, but you just didn't notice. And that's kind of the thing of Michael. He's the, the shape that appears and disappears. And that's how it's actually credited in the, in the credits. It's not no chain as Michael Myers. It's actually just the shape. But throughout the film, they're calling him Michael. Um, so we go through a night, the setup. Um, Michael, Laurie keeps seeing Michael throughout the town seeing him staring at her. And I always felt it's because of one scene where they're walking down the street and they're talking about what they're going to be doing that night, so Laurie and her friends. And Michael drives past in his in this stolen car that he has. Um, and he's driving really fast, and one of them shouts at him, goes, speed kills! And he slams on the brakes. And I feel... so. How I've always thought about this scene is this is the moment that Michael decided that these three, these three girls right here were the ones who were going to get it. These are the three girls that are going to die tonight. Um, He doesn't go and get out the car there and then, though. There's one thing that people don't really talk about much was is Michael has a flair for the theatrics. Um He's, he's always considered the man in the mask and he's the sto- he stalks the, the babysitters. But he loves his theatrics. And I think a lot of people forget about that. There's a scene in the film where Dr. Loomis uh, goes to visit the grave of Michael's sister, Judith Myers. And they get there and the grave is gone. Um, and Loomis seems to straight away go, you can tell he knows something's going to happen. Michael was here. Michael has stolen this gravestone. And it appears later on in the film again. And we'll talk about that when we get there. But yeah, this car scene, it seems to be, in my opinion, this is the moment that Michael decided that these were the three. Now, unfortunately, Halloween 2 retroactively changes this. Um, But uh, it depends what canon you go for now. I don't really apply to the canon of Halloween 2. Uh, and the the what's known as the Thorn um, anthology, I guess you call it, I don't know, the Thorn series. Um, so Halloween 2, 4, 5, and 6. 
Um, I don't. I, yeah, I I I'm, I like to prescribe more to the Halloween and Halloween twenty eighteen. I think that's a much better sequel uh, than Halloween two. But however, uh, you can they can all be counted as con as, as you know their own different continuities because uh, you've got Halloween two three four. That two, four, five, and six, and Halloween H two O is also considered a direct sequel to Halloween. Um, but then you've also got, um, they said the twenty eighteen uh, continuity. But you've also got the remakes uh, that were done by Rob Zombie. So there's a lot of different versions of Halloween. Um, but anyway, I digress. Today we're going to be talking about just Halloween on its own not thinking about the sequels that retroactively added in more information, um, just seeing it as it is, as a standalone film. Because, yeah, I, I've always thought that Michael just decided at that point these are the people that were going to get it. And throughout the film, we see Michael as a figure. Laurie will be looking at the scenes where she's looking out the window and she sees Michael. It cuts back to Laurie, then it cuts back, and he's gone. And there's no way he could have just walked off and disappeared, but did he? It's it's trying to set this supernatural almost feeling of, of Michael. Um, I don't feel that Michael was supernatural in any way, but in, more than if Michael is the boogeyman. <laughs> and he's called that later in the film. He's He is the physical embodiment of the boogeyman. Um he appears throughout the film in different moments interacting with the people that are going to be stalked later that night. It sets up an atmosphere and it sets up the characters. It sets up um, Laurie's totally friend as a girl who's with her boyfriend. She likes to drink and have sex. Um, it sets up her other friend as uh, who is the daughter of the police chief as a girl who likes to do drugs. Uh, you know, they're smoking pot. Um, and so these are all things that in slashes you don't do. There's a rule. If you have sex, you're dead. If you do drugs, you're dead. And these are things that happen through the film. And throughout the film, it's setting up the characters. It's setting up where they're going to be. It's setting up how they've ended up uh, in the scenario that they're they're going to be in. So Laurie is babysitting uh, two young children a boy and a girl um and the blonde totally girl she's got a house to herself uh, the other girl is babysitting a, a single girl so they can they all kind of you know hang out and meet up or they're supposed to now this film itself is not very violent you don't see much but it is in, again as i used in the um exorcist review it's implied violence there is implied violence throughout this film and it's done in a way that kind of sets up your imagination you know it's it's not there to show you look at all this blood and guts which that later did go on to happen in the the, the films from halloween 2 onwards um but it's more of a here is the thing. You see the knife going in in the shadows. You don't really see much else. There's not really any blood in the film. Um, yeah, so the night starts to escalate. What we have is Dr. Loomis throughout the night stalking 
trying to find Michael. He goes to Michael's old home. This is another place that uh, Laurie has an interaction with Michael. Um, this is why I feel he was obsessed with this girl because he saw her. He kept seeing her. Um, she had to drop off a key that day because her father is a real estate, real estate agent. And she drops off a, a key at the Myers house so that people can come and view it later that day. Unbeknownst to her, Michael was inside and saw her again. Um, so it seems that he, he chose her. And it just seems to happen that she had kept being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, the sequel, uh, spoilers for Halloween 2, the sequel tries to say that actually Laurie Schroeder is the long-lost sister of Michael Myers. Um, and that's why he's stalking her. He has to stalk her uh, for some reason and kill her. But, um, yeah, it's never it's not brought up once in the in the original because it wasn't an idea that happened it was an idea that was brought up for halloween 2 because uh, john carpenter was forced to make a second one anyway we digress this is where the, the film starts to escalate and then our characters die now there's only three on-screen kills in this film so th just three three kills um our first is our pot smoking friend Again, as I said last week, I would have looked the name up, um, um, and but you know what? It might at times I forget it anyway. Uh, so she's the pot smoking friend. We've got the totally friend and her boyfriend, and we've got the pot smoking friend. Pot smoking friend, um, gets strangled to death in the in the side of a car, and then this is one of those moments that, again, has the classic jump scare loud noise thing to kind of really get people to jump and to frighten um it's used by john carpenter's music cue um that's something i haven't talked about yet in this film but i will talk about the music the music makes this film um and from there we have the death of the totally friend um the totally friend has a night with her boyfriend they have sex in the house and they're drinking beers it's a different house, but they're having sex in the house. They're drinking beers. And the boyfriend goes off to get more beer. And this is where there's an absolutely iconic shot with... Oh, knock the microphone there. Don't do that. Uh, <laughs> there's an absolutely iconic shot of Michael grabbing the boyfriend by the neck, holding him up against the wall to show that he's not just a man. He's not just a man. He is something else. He is... An entity, you know, he's an unstoppable force. He is the boogeyman. He can't be stopped. He lifts this man off the ground and shoves a knife into him so hard that he is that the man is hanging there by the knife. And there's a real subtle moment where Michael is looking at the body just hanging there and he tilts his head. Almost like he doesn't quite understand what he's doing. Or... If he does, he's just like, huh, okay, that's cool. It's a very strange moment. Um, I remember watching the extras and them talking about this moment where they filmed it on the day and they didn't quite understand why John was, John Carpenter was asking the actor to do this. And then they watched it back and they're like, okay, I get it. It's a visual to show that Michael is not 
there. He is not there. Michael is not there. The shape is there. The shape is this thing that embodies Michael almost, that follows uh, a pattern of, of violence. It wants to kill, but it, it's, it's almost like it's curious as to what will happen when you kill someone. It's this idea that Michael is just killing because he wants to or he's curious. Um, it's nothing more than a game almost to him. It's a wonderful moment that says so much with so little. And it sets Michael apart from a blind stalking killer. It gives it character. It gives it a nuance. And this is the thing. Why is Michael is so popular to this day? He's a slow walking, brooding killer and an expressionless face. But its movement shows expression. It's expressing Michael in that moment. Um, and this is where the theatrics come in. And this is where they really start. Um, so he's been doing his disappearing act throughout the film. Fair enough. This is what I mean by his theatrics that people don't talk about. He puts a sheet over himself. And then he puts his the, the boyfriend, those victims, glasses over the sheet. So he's dressed like a ghost with these glasses on. It's like he's pretending to be the boyfriend. He is, and he goes upstairs and he just stands in the doorway silently. And the girl in the bed, the totally girl, uh, for one, she gets her tits out, so there's your gratuitous nudity right there. Uh, and she, yeah, he, he just stands there. He just stands there uh, staring at her until she gets fed up and then she goes to grab the phone. And then he runs behind her, and as she's on the phone, to Laurie strangles her to death with the phone cord. Laurie hears all of this, but because Laurie knows she is with her boyfriend, she assumes that they're having sex while they've called her. And no, she's dying. She's strangling, being strangled to death. And this is our third kill. So those are our three kills. Done. Dusted within about 15, 20 minutes of each other at most. And then comes the chase. Michael decides to stalk and chase Laurie throughout the houses. Um, and Laurie, you know, protects the, the children that she is babysitting. The children are scared. They're worried that the boogeyman is coming. And like I said, you can't kill the boogeyman, as one of the girls, the, the young girl says. Um, but they don't, you know, it, it's so clever that the, the, the violence really is over. The murders have stopped. But obviously, if you've seen, not, you're seeing this for the first time, you don't know that. And it becomes this cat and mouse game where um, Laurie is being relentlessly stalked by Michael. And through what happens of circumstances, she gets the kids to go and run for safety and try and get help. Uh, what Laurie goes to the house of her where her friends are supposed to be to try and find them because she's now worried and she's scared and this is where more theatrics come in so not only does she find um, her friends dead she, uh, one is hanging in a closet and she finds the gravestone of Judith Myers in the bed where he strangled the totally girl okay Michael likes this. He like he's having fun with this. And this is what 
I often think people forget. Mike, Michael is having fun with his killings. He's he's enjoying it. It's like he doesn't quite understand it. It's like a game to him. And I think that's what was lost in in, in later installments because they, they, they tried to put this idea of, you know, he has to do these killings. Uh, but I really like the idea of in the first one, he seems to just be having fun and is curious and it's just, it's almost like he's trying to feel something. He's trying to get, he's trying to scare people. He's trying to gauge what is some reactions. Like, oh, that's what happens when I do this. Huh. Well, what if I do this? And he's like, it's, it's, he's planned ahead. He knew he was going to do this to someone tonight because he stole a gravestone. We don't know how or how he transported or what, what with, but we know he stole it and he planned to do this. Um, so he wasn't just relentlessly stalking for no reason he he wanted to do certain things and he did them and he stalks laurie throughout the house he uh, stabs her in the arm laurie although she's clearly scared still fights back and this is why oh, jamie lee curtis forever the scream queen she's got a fantastic scream uh, she screams this this the whole cinema down during this film uh, as she's being relentlessly kind of stalked and um, kind of scared by Michael. Sorry if you heard a door closing there. <laughs> Excuse me. But yeah, and eventually, but she fights back. She tries to hide. She realizes hiding isn't an option. So she has to fight back. She stabs Michael with a coat hanger in the neck. She manages to stab him in the eye. And uh, this is where Loomis finally catches up to them all. Uh, she man He manages to get to the house. He figures out what house they're in because of the, the kids uh, running from the house. He comes in and he as Michael is going to kill Laurie, he shoots Michael. He shot him five times. He shot him five times. <laughs> he shoots Michael five times and Michael falls out the window and it ends on that incredible line of um was that the boogeyman Laurie says and Loomis simply looks and, uh, and says as a matter of fact my dear it was and then we get that shot it look he looks over the balcony out of the window to where Michael was lying on the grass just moments ago and he's gone. Michael has disappeared and the theme kicks in and our film comes to an end. And this is where I have to talk about the music. As I said earlier, the music is an integral part to this film. John Carpenter's theme, the Halloween theme, is iconic. It would not be the same film without this music. So John Carpenter would usually um, write, uh, direct, and score most of his films. There's only a few that weren't music-wise done by him. I, don't, I think it might even just be one, which is the thing. Um, but we'll get to that one day. Um, but uh, the synth sound that he used on pretty much all of his um all of his films uh, just pieces this together so well and and there's so many scenes in this film that if they didn't have the right music 
would just be boring. Um, they were shot, and I even think people at the time were like, well, this is boring. When they watched it without it being scored, because um, obviously that's what you do, you score things later on in film, um, they were bored out of their minds. You create that atmosphere with music. Um, and it's the same with all film. You can create a different atmosphere with music. And this music fits the film so well. That Halloween theme in 5-4 that John Carpenter composed, it sets the tone so well. The fact that it is in 5-4 instead of 4-4 kind of gives it an off-kilter feel. It also sets this creepy uh, kind of almost scary tone that you feel something bad is coming because of this music and it really really creates a fantastic atmosphere and a lot of people have tried to emulate that with their films and the slash but there's there's not a lot of films themselves that you can say yep there's there's the theme, the, the soundtrack um, but some uh, there's some horror films in the 80s they decided to have iconic songs there's some song with some great iconic songs and um, you know N nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors or killer clowns from outer space uh, they have these these songs on them that are fantastic but john carpenter had a way of creating a theme that would roll through each of his films and i i have myself um the john carpenter cd of just the the the, the title songs from his films and each one you can hear it and you wouldn't i don't even have to know which track listing it is i was like oh that's that's halloween that's they live you know that's starmer and um, so yeah it's just superb and music uh you don't know this about me guys and if you are my friends you do and uh, but you're listening to this i am a musician myself so music for me is important it's so important and this is one thing that, again, in horror especially, the tone is often set by the music. And he just nailed it. It's perfect in every way. Um, so, yeah, the whole film just seemed to coalesce and create this tension and, and atmosphere. Because, like I said, throughout the film, not a lot happens. There's only three kills, on-screen kills, in the film. But the music creates atmosphere and that's what i think is iconic and fantastic about this film it sets up the characters it show it builds something it sets things up like the grave it sets up that michael has been driving around town all day it sets up that michael keeps seeing laurie all day uh, it sets up that you know he's got an idea in his head that something is going to happen tonight with these three people. And luckily, Laurie survives. She's our final girl, but she is traumatized by the whole events. I like her version of a final girl because she is damaged and she's crying and she's broken uh, by the end of the film. Like she says, she's crying. She says, is that the boogeyman? Like even she's broken, like the, the kids were. Um, yeah, it's anyway. Halloween, there we go. That's my quick summary of kind of and retrospective review of Halloween. Some of the best bits I thought were in Halloween. 
it game, it is a 5 out of 5, a 10 out of 10. I don't know why I say it like that, I just do. A fantastic movie. It is one of those movies that to understand the genre, it, you, you, you should watch it. The slasher genre. Uh, and just ho horror in general. There's certain films that horror junkies or people new to horror do need to watch. And one of them is Halloween. Because of not just uh, the, the icon of Michael Myers... But the whole thing, the script, the characters and the music creates a fantastic night and a fantastic watch. Um, okay, yeah, so that is the the show. Um, I will happily talk about the Halloween sequels in the future. I definitely want to talk about Halloween 3 specifically at some point. However, I may do a whole series on just the Halloween films. Uh, doing a bit more of a proper review of each one rather than a retrospective review, which is what I've done today. Um, but like I said, at the minute, I'm doing some of the classics and really going in depth and talking about them. Uh, but yeah, that is the show. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope it made you want to watch Halloween again and maybe look at it with different eyes. Uh, I've been Dan, a.k.a. The Boogeyman, uh, and you can find us here on, on this podcast coming up weekly uh, where we're going to be talking you said new and old horror films and um, if you can leave a five-star review if you enjoyed it that would help so much and if you really want to support the podcast and keep this going and get more of these going uh, i do have a patreon in the show notes below uh, where you can get access to things like bonus episodes and commentaries uh, and even a shout out on the show so that's Halloween, guys. I hope it makes you want to go watch it. And I really look forward to hearing from you all guys in future. But for now, happy watching. It's all true. The boogeyman is real. And you found it.